Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Seth Masters. He's an associate professor. He's at um, oh, he's part of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research at a university in Melbourne. He's working on uh, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. I guess my pronunciation isn't, isn't too good these days. but uh, Otherwise known as motor neuron disease. Okay, that's easier, motor neuron disease, yeah. Well, Seth, thanks for coming. Tell me about your research. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be able to tell you a little bit about what we do. I might start by saying that uh, most of my lab's research and our focus has not actually been on neurodegenerative diseases like uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or, or otherwise known as motor neuron disease. Actually, you know, we, we really started working on these diseases called auto-inflammatory diseases, and your listeners may be more familiar with these sort of diseases uh, from the context of autoimmunity. Uh, and so essentially, an auto-inflammatory disease is, is like an autoimmune disease because your body is fighting against itself. Um, but actually, in an autoimmune disease, the cells and the pathways that are activated against yourself are those ones where the body has adapted and learnt those behaviours. So these are the same cells that vaccinated against and, and learned to fight against infections in exactly the way we want to fight against COVID-19, for example. And instead, in an autoimmune disease, those cells are somehow learning to fight against the body. Now, in an auto-inflammatory disease, the diseases that I've been really working on, the cells that are turned against the host and are turned against ourselves turn out to be different immune cells, uh, so-called innate immune cells, which are really there to fight infections as a first line of defense. And, and they're the cells you'll probably be familiar with when you cut your arm or, or get an infection somewhere. And, and you have all these white blood cells that form pus. So essentially it's full of these innate immune cells, which really have to stop infection at the site of the infection. They can't learn anything. They are not cells that remember what viruses you've encountered in the past. They just mount an immediate defense and produce a lot of inflammation. Now, the problem is in auto-inflammatory diseases, those pathways are spontaneously active and you get quite profound inflammation. It can be in the skin or it can be a fever or it can be a lot of different symptoms. And it's been difficult to track those diseases down because they often look like infections, but they're not. They're really when the body's fighting a ghost. There's nothing there and it's just turned against itself. And so what we've done in our most recent research is we've taken all of these knowledge about these pathways that fight against ourselves and we've said, are there any other diseases where these might play a role? And we've actually struck upon and identified a really important role in the neurodegenerative disease uh, and motor neuron disease. Uh, And that's quite exciting and quite novel. You know, I think Probably uh, we weren't expecting to find a lot going on in neurodegeneration. It's they're complex diseases. You don't really think about them as being inflammatory, right? But uh, we 
had tremendous success, at least in our laboratory, using patient cells and uh, different sort of preclinical models, we can actually really slow the progress of that disease quite dramatically by blocking just inflammation. And that's not to suggest that's the only thing that's going on in neurodegenerative diseases and certainly not in uh, MND. Question here, question here. I, I hear about inflammation all the time from many people. What is inflammation in your analysis? What does it look like? What does it feel like? It seems like a general world word that's used a lot. So that's why I want to ask you some of the specifics. Yeah, it is a, a pretty general word. And, and you know, it's it, with all of the things that your listeners will be familiar with. Uh, inflammation is, uh, you know, marked by these sort of typical hallmarks of, uh, you know, redness, heat, swelling. Those are the sorts of things that, you know, when you get a sprained ankle or an infection, uh, infected cut, uh, we think about as inflammation. And, and that's exactly what it is. And if you think about that on a cellular level, what's happening is in that region that is inflamed and swollen and hot uh, is that you've got an influx of inflammatory cells there. Uh, and those cells are normally trying to fight an infection and they're going to that place that's inflamed to try and fight an infection. Now, in the diseases that we're sort of talking about today, there is no infection, of course, and they've gone there for the wrong reasons. Uh, and so that's why they can be quite bad cell types to have there, pumping out their uh, inflammatory signals and telling the body, hey, there's an infection here, you need to try and clean it up, when actually there's nothing there. And, uh, you know, those cells are there at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. So what's the, again, we're going down to basics, but what's the point of the redness, of the swelling, of the heat? What, what roles do they play? Well, that, that's been debated and, and there's a lot of explanations as to what that might accomplish. I suppose that one thing that it may accomplish, and there's some data to support this, I think, is that various types of infections and bacteria, for example, might not replicate well or survive well uh, due to that heat. And so it'd be one way of limiting the spread of infection. And maybe it also helps to recruit the right sorts of things and make the environment a good environment to help you fight infection. Most of a lot of what your body is set up to do uh, is fight infection. And that's because the pressure evolutionarily from when you know, us humans were much less evolved than we are now. All the pressure for us to survive was about infection and being able to survive past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of age meant running the gauntlet of all of these things that were out there. And it's only been recently that uh, us humans have escaped from that sort of pressure and now are not having those sort of infections that would have killed so many of our ancestors um, early in life. So, what role does uh, inflammation contribute to ALS? I mean, what, what have you figured out? So ALS, the main problem is uh, this is a disease where um, many, many people have had this condition, you know, perhaps originally most famously Lou Gehrig, the baseballer after whom the disease was first sort of named Lou Gehrig's disease. More recently, people like Stephen Hawking, for example, have suffered this condition. And so you're probably familiar with the end result, which is that People can't walk so well. They eventually can't talk so well. And that's because their muscles are failing them. The muscles are not working because there are various neurons, a cell type that passes the message from your, essentially from your brain to your muscles. Those cells, those neurons 
mostly they either don't work or they're not there. So this loss of those motor neurons that should be controlling the muscles is, is what is resulting in that problem of not being able to walk or talk. And indeed, you know, when you can't move the muscles that are operating your lungs, increasingly it's becoming difficult to survive. And really the last muscles that are still operative are the ones regulating the eyes. And so that's why some patients with ALS are able to communicate um, by using their eyes to sort of look at different things on a computer, for example. And so what's the role of inflammation? Well, what we've found is that these motor neurons are sensitive to inflammation and part of the reason why they're dying and not there uh, in patients with ALS is because the inflammation has, has sort of made them die essentially. And uh, we can keep those cells alive longer if we prevent inflammation. So there's a very specific pathway we've identified and there are uh, molecules that, which we hope are going to turn into drugs. They're currently in uh, preclinical testing and the companies working on these drugs should have them in sort of safety phase one trials, we hope soon, but it hasn't happened yet. Those drugs um, block the inflammation. And I can tell you what's good is that they work in cells from the patients. So although they haven't been into a patient yet, we can take cells from patients and it's a really cool experiment. We uh, get the ALS patient cells and we turn them into something called an iPSC, which is an induced pluripotent stem cell. Uh, so it, it's basically using some chemical tricks or genetic tricks to turn the cell back into a cell type that can make any sort of cell we want. And indeed, we turn it into a motor neuron cell, which is exactly the cell type, which is the problem in, and missing in the patients. And then we grow those cells in the lab and they don't grow very well unless we block the inflammation. And if we block this specific inflammatory pathway, we can keep those patient motor neuron cells alive much longer, at least, you know, in a, in a dish. Uh, and so that's what we'd be hoping to translate into the clinic in the future. You're trying to um, make motor neuron cells what, for implantation or just to be able to study them? Just to study them, uh, we would then take the, the, the drug that works uh, on these cells and, and that, that potential drug molecule is what would, be, would go into patients, yeah. So I, I believe that probably people are very interested in methods of, uh, you know, culturing and perhaps getting more of those cells back into patients. It's difficult, though, because you haven't really nailed the primary problem. And if you don't get rid of that stimulus and that problem that's triggering the inflammation or for in this case you know for, for ALS being a multifactorial disease there might be a couple of different triggers leading to different sorts of problems well you, you, your motor neurons are going to keep dying even if you put more in and so really what we're trying to hit is further upstream in, in sort of you know what are the the primary things that that trigger the inflammation and I suppose that's been one of the most exciting bits is finding what that trigger is uh, motor neuron disease or ALS, almost all patients have a particular aggregate, something which you can see if on autopsy you look in the brain. It's a protein called TDP43. And uh, it's been known about for a long time. Uh, you can probably think about it like uh, a misfolded sort of bit of junk that's lying around and it's supposed to get degraded. But it's, it's suddenly accumulating, in particular, in, in neurons from these patients who have ALS. And what's remarkable is it's, it's pretty much everybody who has ALS. It's like 95% of people. So it, it really 
helps to explain why a lot of people might be sick with this disease. And it even expands further than that. So there are other conditions such as frontotemporal dementia. And in that disease as well, we find these aggregates of TDP43. And so, you know, that has been known for a while. We weren't the first person to show that. But what we, we were the first to show is that this TDP43, this junk stuff that's hanging around, that is the trigger for inflammation. The cell basically says, what is this junk? And it doesn't know what to do with it. And it inappropriately activates and triggers inflammation because uh, it disturbs pathways within the cell, which it, it shouldn't. Uh, and so, you know, that's an interesting because it now tells us we can block inflammation not only in patients with ALS, but also in maybe patients who have frontotemporal dementia and really helps to expand the space. And, and if you think about that in a really big picture, it's been so difficult to treat neurodegeneration. That has really been an area where, you know, there are drugs that fight cancer. There are anti-inflammatories that prevent your arthritis from killing you, from, from making you ill or feel pain. So why have we had so few drugs for neurodegeneration? We just didn't know the pathways. We didn't know what to target. If we can show and demonstrate that indeed inflammation or these immune inflammatory cells contribute to neurodegeneration. It gives us a huge arsenal of drugs and pathways to target. And it would really open up the doors for, uh, we hope, all of neurodegenerative diseases to add years of life to, to patients, to improve uh, memory, to promote uh, the ability to walk and talk for patients with ALS. And that, that would be huge uh, because there's been so few advances in the field in general. What are all the uh, cell types that are localized to the, uh, the motor neurons and when inflammation occurs, you know, like how many different cell types are there? And what does the inflammation look like in the various cell types? Is it different across them? Is it oh, all the yeah. same? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good point. Uh, we haven't, and we need to do more to dissect out that really precise detail, but you're absolutely right. These motor neurons are likely to be in an inflamed environment. There are particular cells in your brain called microglia. And in some respects, they are your sort of innate immune cell in the brain, and, and they are helping to maintain the you know, immune balance in your brain, if you will. Obviously, you can't afford to have an infection in your brain. That is a, a site where any sort of infectious pathogen would be absolutely diabolical. And so, you know, your microglia don't have a lot to do. They don't have a big job in terms of fighting infection because you're not supposed to get many infections there. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. They've got a lot of time to spend doing other things. And the problem is they should be, what they should be doing is keeping the levels of junk proteins down, making sure that things don't go wrong for just normal cellular homeostasis. And probably they're not doing their jobs properly in, in a variety of these neurodegenerative diseases. And specifically in the context of ALS, there is good evidence to suggest that these microglia are some of the more inflammatory cell types, which could be around the motor neurons and the ones producing the inflammation and telling them or, or stopping them from working that well, or maybe even killing them. Well, what if it's a uh, partially a mechanical issue where there's swelling, heat, redness, and that literally is uh, changing the pathways of the nerves or, you know, closing them off, and then they die from there, or they have to, you know, they reroute, they can't reroute. Maybe it's, yeah, it's that. Yeah. 
that that's a possibility, I suppose. We haven't uh, looked at that. I, I would say that this particular inflammatory pathway we've been interested in, because there's lots of different types of inflammation, this one is more the sort of inflammation that you would sort of get in a sort of viral infection, not so much, well, you would see it in a variety of contexts. But what I mean to say is it's a less one that produces heat and more one that sort of produces a, a, a nice sort of antiviral immune response. Uh, and uh, that's really what this pathway is sort of set up to do to help you fight viruses. And so it's not such one that promotes um, heat, but it definitely does help to recruit and promote things uh, and cells which would help fight viruses. And so we think that that's the, the angle where we've got some drugs that might block things and, and make them better. But of course, it would be fascinating to look at the mechanical aspects of this, just very hard to do uh, in the brain and the CNS, but it would be great to, to do that in the future. Well, when people get ALS, where is the, the loss of function first occur typically? Well, that's a good point. And, and I, I must say, um, he, he, having most of my experience working in autoinflammatory diseases, I don't claim to be an expert on uh, motor neuron disease. And so, you know, I guess uh, I, I won't speak at too much length for this, but you're absolutely right. The motor neurons are spanning your body in a lot of respects because you have to get those signals from your central nervous system out to muscles in the periphery. And those motor neurons are going all over the place. So you're absolutely right. Maybe because you're losing those muscles that are furthest away from the central nervous system first, part of this issue is mechanical and part of this problem is, you know, the location physically of where those cells arise. I think also, you know, those cells are under great amount, greater amounts of stress when they're trying to get these signals over longer distances and just have greater, you know, demands on their homeostasis, trying to get those signals longer distances. And it probably helps to explain why the muscles which are operating the longest are, you know, for example, in, in around the eye where they might have more proximity or be a bit easier to, to send the signals uh, from the brain. Yeah, I was thinking of like a micro version of a pinched nerve, literally, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and rather than a mechanical pinch, it's more the inflammation, but, you know, same sort of idea and same concept. Well, so is that known? Um, again, where do people tend to get, is it in their extremities first and then it, it becomes more centralized? Um, and the areas that don't seem to be affected are, like you said, the eye. And um, I remember uh, kind of Stephen Hawking made a joke that he was still able to uh, perform, if you know what I mean, and that his disability... <laughs> Didn't, didn't affect that part of them, you know? I, I'm sorry. I, as I'm relatively new to the field, I don't know so many of these stories. That's the first time I've heard that. But uh, this would not surprise me. I suspect there is some primacy and there is an order to how the disease progresses. And so I, I, I expect that's relevant. And, uh, and we can learn from that. Um, we can also learn from a number of other things that have been noticed. For example, the communities had a lot of discussion around um, environmental potentially triggers for ALS. And so these are things like blue-green algae, and there's been, it's been noticed that certain geographical areas might have a higher incidence of disease. And, you know, there was a lot of speculation, you know, about why that would be the case. Now, we haven't got any smoking guns and we haven't done a lot of research on this, but 
you know, you could speculate and you could say, well, if inflammation is important for ALS, well, of course, you know, things like uh, algae and other things in your environment could be potentially toxic and could be promoting inflammation. And so maybe that's the angle and, and part of the reason why um, your environment and the way you live might predispose you, not cause, but maybe contribute towards a disease like uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Yeah, it just seems difficult because now I'm getting a better picture of what you're saying. So, you know, there's motor neurons all over our body in many different tissue types. And so even to say like inflammation correlates, well, what does inflammation look like in the brain versus the leg versus, you know, near the heart or, or other places? Um, yeah, great point. I just wonder, yeah, I just wonder if there's any, I mean, I know it's a lot of work, but to look at those differences, maybe that would give you some idea. You know, also, if you're going to look at drugs and specific targets for one cell type, they may work and not for all the others or, you know, who knows? So it's just, you're it just seems like a lot of zeroing in has to be done, you know? You're absolutely right. So. Uh, one of those biggest hurdles is regarding the drugs and making them work in, in the central nervous system. There is this thing called the, the blood-brain barrier, and it's typically difficult for a lot of drugs to get past this into the sites where we want them to get for neurodegenerative diseases. But we have hope and we can design our drugs better with now knowing where they need to go. So, you know, that, that's a hurdle and, and we hope to cross that. Uh, with regards to, you know, what you've said about what inflammation looks like in different parts of your body, it, it is likely to be really different. And our experiences of that inflammation probably tell you that, you know, when you have a, a sprained ankle, that inflammation feels and looks different to when you have an infected cut and the inflammation that you observe with, with the pus in that area. And so when you have inflammation in the brain, you know, you're not necessarily even going to feel that or notice the swelling. Or, or, but are there chemical hallmarks? Are there biomarkers? Can we study this in enough detail that we can find out which patients have the most inflammation in their, affecting their motor neurons? And they are gonna be the ones who respond the best to the drugs that we're hoping to develop. Uh, and so those biomarkers are things we're working on. We've got a couple of good leads and we're, we just need to validate them in, in more patients. And so that's work that's ongoing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, anything else I should have asked you about this that uh, you know would be good to talk about a major area of inquiry? Well, I, I think that patients are going to have uh, a lot of hope, and I think an important thing to say is to you know to 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 really gauge that enthusiasm and optimism with with some realistic aspects of how long it takes to develop these drugs, the hurdles that are involved. But you know, I think that hope is there because inflammation does link together so much of what we already know around thinking about causes and associations for the disease. And the fact that in, in our, all our laboratory tests, blocking these pathways works well. And, you know, the clinical communities had such success at treating inflammation in the clinic. That that's why I think there's deservedly great hope that these drugs and pathways will translate to neurodegeneration. And so, you know, for, for everyone out there who's battling with one of these conditions, uh, uh, good luck. It's, it's going to be a while, but there is great hope. So stay the course and, and you know, we'll hope to get these um, things validated as quickly as humanly possible to get these 
pathways validated and, and identify those key nodes that can hopefully treat uh, and at least slow the progression of disease. We don't think that these are going to be cures, uh, but they do look like they're going to slow uh, and give people years of life, better quality of life uh, in, in the best Very good. So, Seth, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, please, um, uh, you know, uh, get get online and, and go to uh, wehi.edu.au. That's w-e-h-i.edu.au. And that's uh, the institute where I work. And if you uh, look me up, you can find more about what we do. I think at the, the top of the podcast, I mentioned that our main thing that we do is really auto-inflammatory diseases. And, and these are conditions that are relatively non-specific and sort of can be confused with infections, but they're recurrent and long lasting. And so they often mark out, you know, years or decades of people's lives. Uh, and they can send patients on a diagnostic odyssey looking for the reason why they are sick. And in many cases, of course, it's impossible to find a reason why people might suffer from repeated bouts of inflammation. But in some cases, we, we have tremendous ability and tremendous luck. Uh, and there are great drugs if we can identify those causes of disease. If any of your listeners, if this is resonating with them and they think that this is something that's relevant for them, I encourage them to speak with their primary attending clinician or physician and get their clinician uh, to contact us. We don't provide much in the way of uh, face-to-face or individualised um, responses to patients, but we are very happy to to discuss uh, the case with your clinician and see whether there's a way forwards thinking about auto-inflammatory disease as a potential reason or contributing factor to repeated periodic bouts of inflammation that, that may be severely affecting many of your listeners. Yeah, excellent. Well, Seth, thank you for what you do and thank you for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, my absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.